Psalm number 94. Let's read through it. And then we shall give it a look-see. Psalm number 94. A little bit longer than the psalm we looked at last week, so I'll try to move along a little, little bit faster. Psalm 94, verse 1. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow, the stranger, and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, The Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who chastiseth the heathen, shall not he correct? He who teaches man knowledge, shall not he know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against evil doers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, My foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, who frameth mischief by, by a law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. Well, as you can probably guess, this psalm, its theme is a cry for vengeance. Anybody ever have a problem with revenge? We have things happen in our culture. We just had one last week, didn't we? Senseless crime, brutal, unfeeling, uncaring acts against humanity. And there ought to, within us, rise up an indignation concerning what, what has transpired. But I want you to notice that there is a distinction between revenge and vengeance. Revenge is an act of passion. Vengeance is an act of justice. Revenge addresses the injury to a person, a personal injury received. Vengeance 
addresses the crime. Revenge sees the personal loss, whereas vengeance sees the assault on justice. For instance, what happened in California last week more than likely didn't affect any of us here. I think uh, Mark and Anna Kate did know one of the young ladies that was shot there in the theater. A very remarkable story of her deliverance, by the way. If you've not seen that, I might get them to forward the link onto the Grace Bible Announcements group. It was an amazing story how this young lady was spared a buckshot, basically went up her nose, up through the brain, and uh, she is surviving it well, and it's someone they had met. Some sort of a, like, almost like a tube that this buckshot went through that tube. And Now, there's a lot of us that buckshot could go through our heads, wouldn't hit a bit of brain, but, but uh, most people, that's not, that's not healthy. And so, you know, outside of the fact, if we don't know the people involved, Mark and Anna Kate would be one of the few that would actually know someone, uh, we would not feel the sense of a personal attack or a personal attack on us. It wasn't our family. It wasn't our friends. It wasn't one of us. And yet, at the same time, do you not sense the idea that vengeance needs to be done? What we would say is, when we call for God to be a God of vengeance, we're essentially asking Him to be a God of justice. We're asking Him to be the just God that He declares Himself to be in His Word. And so that's what we're dealing with tonight. That's what the psalm, and and as we've noted, isn't it interesting going through these psalms, the variety of topics. It's almost, whatever you're going through at the moment, you can just about find you a psalm that addresses that. It's like, here's your psalm for the day. Here it is. The psalmist was going through the same thing you're going through. And so if any of you are having to deal with an injustice done against you, um, hopefully you're not, but if you are or when that occurs, remember there is a psalm addressing precisely that situation. The psalm lays out almost half and half. The first 11 verses deal with a call or a cry for vengeance, and then starting in verse 12 to the end, there is a section that deals with a comforting thought, what I would say. I don't know how else to describe it. The people of God reflect upon these things in the last half of the psalm that gives them comfort in a time of adversity. So we'll deal with it just little chunks at a time. I want to, first of all, look at the first two verses. Notice that our God is a God described as one to whom vengeance belongs. It is a declaration that He is the judge. Look at the second verse. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Do you remember when Abraham was negotiating, I don't know what other word to use it, with God over the fate of Sodom? If I find 50 righteous there, will you spare it? Okay, 50. Well, what if it's just 45? Okay, what if if it's just 40? It's, It's like dealing with a car salesman. Right? You just try, try to work him down. And uh, at the end of the day, what Abraham has said to God is, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
Is it right for the innocent to suffer along with the guilty? But notice how he characterizes this. Shall the judge of all the earth, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so it is in a sense that God is the judge of all the earth. He's the universal judge. He is the supreme court, the supreme judge. There is none above him. There's none who can contradict or overthrow what he decides. And he alone is qualified to execute vengeance. You ever thought about that? Number one, it's his office. He's the judge. Number two, he alone is qualified to know all the particulars and the parameters of the act that has been perpetrated. Because he is omniscient, because he is present, because he is omnipresent, there is nothing that escapes his scrutiny. He knows exactly what has happened. He knows exactly why it's happened. Human justice and human courts and human judges are always going to be fallible. One of the sad things about any kind of human justice, and we we go out of our way to try to make sure that the evil are punished, the innocent are not punished. But there are times that the evil man gets away with it. Even in Bible days that happened. There had to be two or three witnesses to a crime, so that meant there were a lot of crimes that were performed one-on-one, that the person was never punished because there was never more than one witness. So there were a lot of times that wicked men got away with it. But notice that that principle, that there must be two or three witnesses to a crime, is intended to protect the possibility of somebody slandering you, bringing a false charge against you, and making you be punished when you're innocent. In other words, things are tilted towards letting the guilty guy get away sometimes in order that the innocent man does not get punished. Do you see how things... Uh, Bradley, you're down at the, the court now. Here's, here's a law man over here. And uh, as much as you might wish that justice is always fairly applied, impartially applied... I mean, after all, Lady Justice is holding those scales in her hands and she's got the... Band, the Band-aid, the bandana or blindfold around her head. Uh, the idea is she's not respecting persons. She doesn't see the color of the person, the economic stratus. She doesn't know the, the person at all. Uh, she is completely objective. And yet, at the same time, we realize that human justice systems are fallible. And so God alone is qualified to know all the ins and outs of a crime. Secondly, you would say, and there are many who would say, that if God does execute justice, um, I did see, uh, I thought, I wondered how long it would take to start seeing stories like this pop up on the Internet from the shooting out there in California. And today, I think it was on CNN's site, they had this big headline, Where Was God During the Shooting? I mean, here's these innocent people being blown away. Where's God? I knew it was coming, just predictable as the weather. Where, where's God? In other words, the point is, here is this horrible crime, this horrible act of injustice, and where's God? But notice that it is no reflection on God's goodness if he executes vengeance. In fact, it is a reflection on his goodness if he does not execute vengeance. It's sort of like saying a just judge. I mean, do you want your case heard by a just judge? 
Not if you're guilty. <laughs> you want a crooked judge. You want one that can be bought off, you see. The just judge does what? He sees that justice is performed. That's what, that's what he does. That's why he's judged. And so in the same sense, do you want your case heard by a good God? Because after all, a good God must see to it that wrongs are righted. That judgment falls on the perpetrators of evil acts. So in other words, rather than the doctrine of God's judgment in any way slandering his character, his very goodness and justice and righteousness makes such judgment absolutely necessary. And so the question is, where is he when crimes are committed and they're not immediately judged? He does not need to justify himself for bringing judgment upon evildoers. He's got to justify himself for not judging evildoers. Think about it. God's problem is not how to put a guilty person in hell. That's easy. Just give him what he's got coming. God's problem is how to put a folk like you and me who deserve to go to hell in heaven. That's the problem. That's what's got to be explained. How can he pass by the sin of you and me? Not how can he judge the sin of the sinner. And so Paul will spend a lot of ink, I guess it was ink, there in the book of Romans, laying out a case for how God can, on the basis of our faith in Christ, justify us. How he can declare us not guilty when we are guilty, in fact. How can that be? How can that be an act of justice? And even in salvation, do you realize the pain that God went to to make saving you and me an act of justice. That it's not just sweeping our sin under the rug. That what Jesus did on the cross is a propitiation. It is a payment that averts wrath and judgment. When the sinner is crying in the temple, God be merciful to me, a sinner, we read in our version, literally it is propitious. God be propitious to me, a sinner. He is asking that God give him mercy and forgiveness on the grounds of sacrifice that has been offered in his place. So in our case, it is not that an injustice has taken place at all. Your sin will be judged. My sin will be judged. Either in hell or on a cross. It will not be overlooked. It will be judged in full. And so, first of all, we see that God is called upon to take his seat as a judge. Notice the, the idea here in verse 1, to show himself, and verse 2, to lift himself up. There are times that it appears to us that the judge is out of the courtroom. Now, God is never off duty. He never takes a day off. He that watches over Israel never slumbers or sleep. He's not taking a nap. And yet, there are times that it appears to us that God is not actively judging wrongdoing, right? And so, the cry here is for God to show himself, the judge, reveal himself as such, to manifest himself as such. And you'll notice the next thing that follows in verses 3 and 4 is this question, how long? And this is the fascinating that you keep running into when you study this whole notion of God judging 
is every time we find it, it's not righteous people saying, God, how could you? How could you judge? How could you show wrath? How can you possibly judge evil people? The cry over and over again that you find in the Bible is, God, why is it taking so long? How long are we going to have to wait till you show yourself, till you reveal your justice? Turn over to Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6. In verse 9, we read, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? You see the similarity? How long? How long are we going to have to wait till you judge those who slew us? And you'll notice in verse 11, God didn't reply. Now, fellas, y'all, sh- y'all shouldn't even be asking for such things. You shouldn't even be talking about that. What does he tell them? White robes are given every one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest, yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, were fulfilled. In other words, we've got a few more of you to kill. The wicked will kill a few more of you, and then when the final number of the martyrs is slain, judgment will come. But till then, you're going to wait. And so just notice the the general theme of God's people crying for their wrongs to be avenged, and never are they told that you shouldn't be asking for such things. They're simply told to wait. To wait. There's a fascinating parable in Luke. Turn over there a moment, Luke 18. It's a widow lady. Remember, the widows had very little power, very little pull. In verse, in chapter 18 of Luke, starting in about verse 2, there's this judge who doesn't give a hoot about anybody, God or man. There's a widow who keeps pestering him. And notice what the widow is saying in verse 3, Avenge me of mine adversary. She is crying to God, for his vengeance, okay? But this judge keeps uh, putting her off, putting her off, and finally he says, I don't give a hoot about anybody, God or a man, but this woman's about to drive me nuts, so I'll tell you what, I will do what she asks. Now, this is actually a parable about prayer. You should never quit praying, okay? But notice the subject that she's asking the judge, who doesn't give a hoot about anybody, to do is to execute vengeance. And notice the punchline here in verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, who cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Notice again, is it it out of place for God's elect to ask God to avenge? Apparently not. Because that's what this widow is asking, the unjust judge. And notice this is a parable of comparison. If the unjudge, the unjudge, the unjust judge will give this woman what she's asking for, 
when He doesn't give a hoot about anybody, surely God Almighty who loves His elect will hear their cry. Well, but what's the similarity? It may be a while. He may suffer long with them. He may not do it quickly. They may have to wait like this woman had to wait for his own reasons, for his own purposes, before he avenges. But when he avenges, it will be speedily. It may take a long time for judgment to fall, but when it does fall, it falls speedily and without remedy. The old saying is, the wheels of the the grinding stones of justice grind exceedingly slow, but exceedingly fine. It may be a while before God judges, but when He does judge, it will come, it will come speedily and without relief. I guess that was the theme of Michelangelo's last judgment in the Sistine Chapel that so struck me. And it was the picture of Christ on the day of judgment surrounded by the martyrs holding up the emblems of their martyrdom. And uh, the one that struck me the most was Bartholomew who by church tradition was skinned alive. And Bartholomew is holding up the knife in his skin holding up to Christ, asking for vengeance, asking for judgment, and now the day of judgment has come. It was certainly a striking, powerful picture there. Some Catholicism woven into it, but this picture of judgment has still still strikes me as uh, that here are the martyrs themselves asking. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation, isn't it? In chapter 6, they're asking God to avenge them. Now, here's a question for you. Is it proper? I've already asked you this. You already nodded your head, so I'm going to catch you here, okay? I asked you a moment ago, is it proper for the elect, for God's people, to ask for vengeance? And all of you said, yeah, because after all, we just had the woman asking for vengeance. We had the martyrs asking for vengeance. Let me ask you another question. Is it proper for a forgiven sinner like you and me who are guilty of the very crimes that we're asking God to avenge, to ask for vengeance. Are you raising your hand, Barry? Or that's just the way it is. In other words, isn't that strange? Have you ever thought about that? That we who are forgiven sinners, we are not receiving judgment, and we turn around and ask God to avenge the crimes of others upon us when we may well be guilty of the same crimes. I'm thinking of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, persecuting the church, and then being persecuted for being a follower of Christ. Everybody's... And Barry, you are correct, is that, isn't it interesting that a Christian no sooner becomes a Christian than he wants to see righteousness done? Robert?
Well, the non-Christian, have you ever noticed, really doesn't want God to judge him. He wants to judge him. It's revenge he wants. But, but, yeah. They still want to see right done. Yeah. Okay. But you're saying, I hear you hedging, I hear you hum and hawing here, of saying, well, but it's different. Okay, that's, that's what I'm wanting to ask. Patty, you had a... Okay, there you're getting here, Melody. Blessed are the merciful. What about the verse? Heaping coals on the fire. That's where I want to go. Is that that is right at the end of the twelfth chapter of Romans. And what I'm trying to point out is that though the Christian here's two things to keep in mind. The Christian because now he has a desire for God's glory to be demonstrated, manifested, and part of God's glory is his justice. It's his righteousness. Right? And that's what Robert's trying to say. There is within the heart of a regenerated saint a desire to see right done, justice perpetrated. So on the one hand, the Christian is uniquely qualified to ask God to show vengeance. Because he's doing it from the right reason, namely that God's name and God's character and God's glory be upheld. Okay. On the other hand, the Christian is uniquely disqualified from actually executing vengeance because he is himself is a forgiven criminal. And so there, I think, is the balance. On the one hand, and that's why it's saying vengeance belongs to God. It does not belong to you and I. Go to Romans 12. Last verse is there. Starting about verse 17. Romans 12, 17. Recompense to no man. Evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, and this is written in Deuteronomy um, chapter 32, verse 35, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now what that is telling me is that I, as a forgiven criminal, a forgiven sinner, number one, am totally disqualified from being the instrument of God's wrath and his vengeance. That's not my job. My job is to do good to those who would do evil, to 
get even with them. And this idea about heaping coals of fire on their head, that's a strange, strange metaphor. But it's the idea that if you want to get even with someone for doing evil to you, do good to them. Because you see, the wicked man, lost man, expects if he does something evil to you, you're going to do something evil to him. The last thing on earth he's expecting is for you to do something good to him after he's done evil to you. He doesn't know how to compute that. He doesn't know how to handle that. You talk about getting to him. That gets to him. And it may well be that an act like that may result in his conversion. But whether it does or not, what Paul is saying is, here's the way Christians get even with the people who have done them evil. This is how they enact vengeance. They give them good. And so, rather than being overcome by evil, they overcome evil with good. It's sort of like, well, you've got to fight fire with fire. No, you don't. You fight fire with water. With that which is antithetical to the character of the thing. And so the Christian is to render back good for evil. Does that mean that we just then forfeit ever seeing the wrong that has been perpetrated against us righted? Does it mean that we forever don't receive vengeance? Yes, Derek? Ah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, we're going to say, yeah, hold, hold off just a second on that. That's where I've got to go next. You're getting ahead of me. You know, way out there, way out there. I mean, usually that's somebody else. But anyway. Um, so do you see what I'm saying is that our duty, uh, let's take Paul in Second Corinthians 5, our calling is to be ministers of reconciliation, not ministers of judgment. We're disqualified from being ministers of judgment. We're uniquely qualified to be ministers of mercy because we ourselves have received mercy. We ought to be ministers of... We've received this ministry, Paul says, of reconciliation. We plead with you, be you reconciled to God. That's our job. That's our task. That's our calling. Okay? On the other hand, there are ministers of vengeance. And that's where Derek was talking about. And if you're still in Romans 12, guess what follows Romans 12? Romans 13. I'll tell you, we're, we're a sharp bunch here. Sharp as a sponge, yeah. Go on into chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. That's the authorities, the civil authorities. There is no power but of God, the powers that be ordained of God. This is human government we're talking about. Wherefore, therefore, uh, whosoever resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. Now we know there are exceptions to this. There are evil rulers who persecuted Christians for being Christians, for doing good. But you would have to, it's sort of like my old friend Tom Smith said that uh, 
he was talking about the book of Proverbs. He says 99% of your life is covered by the book of Proverbs. He said the other 1% is covered by the book of Job. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> well, 99% of the time, you're not going to get stopped going home tonight unless you're speeding. It's not universally true, but as a proverbial sense, it's the evildoer, it's the lawbreaker. Uh, if you're out uh, roaming around at 2 in the morning, breaking in somebody's house, you're the one going to get arrested. Most of us, I begin to understand as I got older why crime is committed by the young people because most crime is committed in the middle of the night, and us old folks, we got to be to bed. You know, we got to, <laughs> the sun goes down, we're out. <laughs> we got to do our evil before the sun sets See if we're going to have energy. <laughs> you know, so that cuts down uh, the crime rate for the older folks. But um, the point being is that there are exceptions, but we would say, yes, most of the time, Paul, you're exactly right. Those who are law-abiding citizens don't get in trouble with the authority. There were times that the Roman law demanded them to do something a Christian couldn't do, but those were exceptions to the rule. Now, look at verse 4. These rulers that he's just talked about in verse 3 are now described in verse 4, for he is the minister of God. Now, we normally think a minister is a guy that stands up here in the pulpit. But he's a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, or better, a avenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. The point is, is that God executing vengeance may employ human means. The human magistrate, the lawman, the policeman, the judge. He may, in, he may use armies in the case of nations, or he may use the civil powers in the case of individuals. In other words, it is not that we as Christians then have no recourse, but it is not our office to exact vengeance. That's the policeman's job. Does that make sense? That we are not calling. Our job is to be a minister of mercy. That's our calling. We're to seek reconciliation between the sinner and God. And notice how qualified we are, if we're Christians, for that office. We're not qualified for the other one. We're guilty of the very things they're doing. In fact, when Paul writes Titus and tells him to be kind and teach these Cretans to treat everybody good and he says, because once upon a time we just like them. Hateful and hating one another. That's us. Yes, James? Oh, boy, you ask difficult questions. Do you realize that the Anabaptists in church history would not ever allow themselves to be a human magistrate? In fact, that was one of the... the Things, there are a lot of things that sort of separated Anabaptists from everybody else. But one of them was is that they would never be a civil magistrate for this very reason. Now, Anabaptists and Baptists typically disagreed. Uh, you go to the earliest, the uh, first London Baptist Confession, and they distanced themselves from the Anabaptists. And this is one of the areas they distanced themselves with. This whole question, is it lawful for a Christian to be a policeman, to be a court officer. 
But you see where the question arose, don't you? You see the problem? And there's a sense in which a Christian in the capacity of a magistrate is in a difficult situation. He's literally got to wear two hats. As far as the state's concerned, in that sense, he's a minister of God for justice. On the other hand, as a Christian, he's to be a minister for mercy. So it does put one in a very, very awkward situation. Chew on, chew on that a little while. You, in other words, I don't agree with the Anabaptists, but I understand where they're coming from. I see the problem. Okay. We have a whole section, and I'm not going to dwell much on this, from verses 5 through 11, and we're going to be here at midnight, over the foolishness of the wicked man who thinks he can sin and get away with it. And to give you the shorthand version, the idea here presented is that the man is a fool who thinks that he will escape God's vengeance. Uh, there is a fool in Psalms 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But there are practical atheists as well as theological atheists. And by practical atheists, I mean somebody who lives as if there is no God. And this is what the wicked man is being called on the carpet. And he's asking him, do you really think that the God who has planted the ear doesn't hear? In other words, the whole sense here is the wicked man thinks he can sin and get away with it. He can sin and God won't know it. He won't be found out. He won't be called on the carpet. So the question is, do you think the God who planted your ear, and planted is an interesting word. I mean, most of us, our ears, this isn't our ears. Our ears are planted inside our heads. That's just the, I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's just the external part. Uh, our ear, your hearing organ, is actually inside your head. Okay, He's planted the ear in your head. And you think the one who planted the ear can't hear? If we think of man being made in the image of God, the fact that you can hear, doesn't that mean he can hear? Now notice he doesn't say he's got an ear because that would be to go a little too far. You don't want to imply that he has parts and passions as we have. But in other words, to think that what goes on, he doesn't hear? Or that the God who... And this is the word of shaped, like a, uh, somebody shaping a piece of clay into a pot. The God who shaped the eye, who formed the eye, do you think he can't see? Uh, the eye is one of the most difficult things for evolutionists to explain, by the way. Uh, the intricacy of it, and you've got to have a 100% eye or a zero. You know, you either got sight or you don't. There is really no in-between. Remember Richard Dawkins in a debate way back there, was debating a creationist, and he said, uh, well, he said, I can certainly see how half eye is better than no eye because half sight is better than no sight. Well, the reply was, half an eye doesn't give you any sight. It's got to be complete. It's got to be functioning. That's the problem with the eye, is it is so intricate. So here is the idea of the God who fashioned your eyeball. Do you think he can't see? The God who... Gave you understanding. Who teaches? Do you think he doesn't understand what's going on? Uh, do you ever realize the most difficult thing, by the way, for an evolutionist to try to prove is where your conscience came from? The fact of your conscience is a befuddling thing for the evolutionist. 
Because if evolution is true, you should have no conscience when you run over somebody or you just getting them out of the gene pool. Where does this conscience come from? How is it that I have this consciousness of right and wrong? You see? And so the point the psalmist is making, do you really think if you have a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong, do you think God doesn't? And if you can be incensed by what we would call righteous indignation over the horridness, the hiddenness, you, a sinner, can get incensed about sin? What do you think about a God who is thrice holy, infinitely holy? There are crimes that would literally turn your stomach to hear them described. What kind of revulsion do you think goes on in the heart of a thrice holy God, an infinitely holy God, over the hideousness of man's sin? He lists a few of them here. Sins against widows. Sins against the stranger. That's the guy who's just passing through. Sins against an orphan. And that the wickedness of man doesn't hesitate to commit such acts against such people. And so the idea is, do you really think that you need to wake up and wise up? If you've got a sense of hearing, sight, understanding, moral revulsion, how much more does your God? Do you really think you're going to escape? And so we come to the second half. and This will be faster than the first. The comfort of those who are waiting for God's judgment. You'll notice down in verse 12, we now turn our attention not to the wicked man who's been doing all this evil stuff, but the blessedness of God's people. And I want you to see how they're described here. Number one, they're chastened. They're chastened. What does it mean to be chastened? Spanked. (laughs) Corrected. Disciplined. Trained. All of those words. We, we generally think of chastening as punishment, and a lot of times it is. But most of the time, when the Bible speaks of chastening, especially like over in Hebrews, the, the man who's blessed because God chastens him, and if you don't get chastening, it means God's not your father. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. It's in the idea of training. That God is in the business of correcting his kids. He's not letting them get away with it. He's in the business of teaching his kids. Notice the second part there. You teach this man. Your people, you correct them and you teach them out of your law. The point is, is that you are actively involved in keeping your children from doing the things these other people do. It doesn't mean that they are infinitely holy and they're always going to do what you want, but when a child of God sins, One of the tokens that he truly is a child of God is God doesn't let him get away with it. He corrects him. He's training him. He's shaping him. He's teaching him. So notice there is a blessedness that attends someone like you and I who gets spanked. I never thought about growing up getting spanked by my mom and dad was a blessing. But now that I'm older, I've realized it was. What a blessing to have mom and dad who was concerned about the way I behaved. And they did it imperfectly. They did it sometimes, I'm sure, because I wore them out. They lost patience and so forth. They probably didn't do it out of love all the time, like I do. (laughs) Yeah, Uh (laughs) uh-huh. 
They didn't do it equally all the time, you know, but yet they did it because they loved me and I was their child. And so it is that our God, who is infinitely wiser than our human parents, does the same thing with His his children. And notice the other blessing in verse 13, you are going to give Him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. I love that verse. While this day of adversity, when the wicked are persecuting and seemingly getting away with it, you will give us rest in that day. There's something we can rest on, even in the midst of while we're being persecuted. And of course, that thing is the fact that we know a God who will avenge. And so, even while we're being afflicted, we can rest in the knowledge of our God until the pit be digged for the wicked. It's like there's a deep, deep pit being dug, and uh, it's not ready yet. And so, till the pit is finished, we can find a place of rest. I, I just love the way that's, that's expressed. And the reason is verse 14, we know that God will not cast off His people or forsake His inheritance. We know, we don't know how long, but we know that God will eventually judge. Judgment in verse 15 shall return unto righteousness like judgment, it's like quid pro quo, something for something. Judgment will come for these acts. Yes, ma'am? Could the um, well, there's a sense in which we're being trained to wait. We're being taught to be patient. And let's remember that at the end of the day, we walk by faith and not by sight. We are having. We're being trained to trust that what these eyeballs are seeing out here in the world is evil seemingly prevailing and evil men getting away with it. I am taught by the Word of God that that's not going to be the way this thing turns out, although right now my eyes don't see it. So there's a sense in which I'm being trained. I'm, it may even be the evil acts perpetrated against me are the, are the things God uses in my training the afflictions I receive, the persecutions I receive. Persecution worketh patience. Right? This is teaching us that we've got to wait, that what we're being taught by our God is that what we see right now in the way it's always going to be, that He will perform His promises. The faith is the substance of things not seen. It's the evidence of things hoped for. Things it's not seen and it's not now, it's heaven, and it's later. And so we're being trained in that whole process. So yeah, the whole thing works together for good to them who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Notice the other comforting thought here is that the persecuted saint is never alone. There's an interesting thing here in verse 16 and 17. He's asking, who's going to stand up to me with me? It's back in the old days of the Old Testament, you had a Gao, G-A-O-L, the kinsman redeemer. And if you're being afflicted, the kinsman redeemer comes to your aid. 
He, he stands next to you. He's your, he's your it's, it's, it's a very pregnant term. He's your deliverer. He's your friend. He's your advocate. He stands with you in the day of adversity. Uh, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer in the days of Ruth, okay? He's the guy who comes into the picture and all of a sudden everything's reversed. The whole situation is turned upside down. The psalmist is saying, who will stand with me in this day of adversity? Who's going to be there for me? And notice he never answers his question. It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is nobody. I'm all by myself. I don't have anybody to stand with me except, verse 17, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. I, I, I didn't have a word of help, comfort, encouragement for anybody except God stood with me. And verse 18, when my soul, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. He caught me when I was slipping. I was well nigh gone. Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph, that my foot was almost slipped. I, I was almost gone. Almost gone. Almost. If it had been up to me, I'd have slipped over the cliff. But God's mercy caught me. Wonderful, wonderful thing. Again, notice the comfort for the saint in times of affliction, adversity. And then, verse 19, these thoughts comfort my soul. What are they? Well, verse 20, a throne of iniquity is not going to have fellowship with the Holy God. They who frame mischief by law. We got anybody framing mischief by law today? <laughs> Notice this is the throne of iniquity. This is ungodly power. Wicked men in places of authority. Framing laws that are ungodly. And the comfort for the saint is that my God in His throne will never have fellowship with them in their throne. God's never going to be on their side. They may have the power today. They may look like they're the ones thriving. But in the end, God will show Himself on my side, not the throne of iniquity. Finally, the Lord is my defense. He's my rock. My refuge. All of those words we've seen throughout the psalm that speak of one fleeing to God as to a fort, as to a fortress, and that God in the end will bring upon the sinner his own iniquity and cut them off in their own wickedness. It is difficult for us, can I end with this thought? Have you ever thought about how you will handle in heaven beholding the wicked being judged in hell. Especially when some of them are your family, friends, companions. These were people that you had a heart for. How will you handle the beholding of the wicked in that day? Derek?
It is difficult for us to be able to think now how we can handle that then. There's a lot of things that we face in this life that we just don't see. How, how, could, how could we ever enjoy heaven if someone I love, one of my family, my children, are in hell? And I'm seeing them there. And I'm beholding them. How, all I know is the angels, when it came time for God to judge, judge you know what they said? They didn't say, oh God, how in the world could you do such a thing? They said, you're holy and righteous. They shed the blood of your servants. You've given them blood to drink. That's a good thing. In other words, they said, yeah. They're getting exactly what they got coming. Another place, the angels say, hallelujah. You're finally judging the sin of man. Hallelujah. I've often said there were toys that we had when we were children. Well, I did. Well, you did. That literally, I thought I couldn't live without. Life just wouldn't be the same if I didn't have this toy. It might be a teddy bear, you know, your blankie or whatever. You just can't go on if you don't have that toy, that thing. And now... At the stage of life I'm at, I look back and I can't even remember what it was. Could care less. Why? Then I was a child, now I'm an adult. The things that were important to me as a child are not nearly so important right now. And I'm thinking heaven will be a lot like that. That we will be now perfected in glory and we will have a heart that is totally in tune with God Almighty. We will not be conflicted in saying, God, how is it that you could possibly judge this sinner over here because this sinner is someone near and dear to me? That we'll be at perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect fellowship with God in what He does, in His acts. That right now, we have a hard time visualizing how that possibly could be. But in glory, right now, we're still sinners. Right now, it is our human relationships and emotions that run amok. There's a day coming when we're perfected in glory that our heart will be seeing God as He truly is. will be made and conformed into the image of Christ perfectly. And the one thing that you see with Christ and His Father, not my will, thy will be done. Okay, so the next time you want to throttle somebody, Think about this psalm. It's an interesting one, to say the least. Um, The Christian is a unique character, and I'm thinking of Robert's statement, that on the one hand, we have this heightened sense of right and wrong, don't we? We have a heightened sense of justice and injustice, and we get all righteously indignant when evil men do evil. And yet, on the other hand, here we stand, ourselves forgiven, ourselves debtors to mercy, debtors to grace, of all the people who are disqualified from being the judge, jury, and executioner is us. And so, let's remember, in the midst of all of this, that my calling is to extend mercy, to be as loving and gracious, it's to reflect the grace and mercy It's to desire righteousness, but I leave that in the hands of God.
to execute in his way and in his day. And I will wait on him. And in the meanwhile, do you realize that his waiting, his delaying justice, is in fact an act of mercy because it gives the opportunity, the span for repentance, that the day of grace is still upon us. The door of salvation is still open. There's still a need for that ministry of mercy and reconciliation that we are, we're called to. All right, let's uh, stop there.